Our Father, once again, we are thankful for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts, who communicates to us your word, that we have a compass and a guide, and that we have the basis for uh, living the Christian life. We are happy empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and most of all, we're thankful for the salvation that we enjoy undeserved, unmerited, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Tonight I want to finish up the, uh, on the doctrine of sanctification a little bit, and then we want to enter into the new uh, chapter, a new period of history that we're going to start in tonight on the exile. <clears throat> and um, we're going to have quite a bit of history to go through tonight uh, because we want to get into the book of Daniel just a bit, though again this is not a Bible class, exegetical Bible class, it's more topical. Uh, I want to get into some passages and show some of the neat things that uh, happened at this point in history. Um, before I do that, though, I, I want to make sure we understand where we've come from as far as um, the uh, doctrine of sanctification. You remember that as we've gone through uh, for the past two or three months, um, this issue of the decline of the kingdoms and the fall, that we've looked almost exclusively at life inside the kingdom, life that that shows how God reigned in that kingdom and therefore shows the character of God. So we've concentrated in, under the kingdoms in decline on sanctification, chastening repentance, and the promise of the final cleansing. As the kingdoms have declined, you have an increasing tension between the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and the actual practice. And this tension starts to grow when all this grand and glorious kingdom is promised and yet it looks so raunchy. And as the, the ideal and the actual start parting, you have the rising up of the prophetic uh, sections of scripture and the prophecies. So it's looking forward then to a final cleansing and final solution. Now. As a, as a way of demonstrating and reviewing that process of discipline upon the nation, um, if we look at a map, it's quite evident what happened. We start out looking at what the kingdom looked like in David's day. And uh, when David, at the maximum period of the conquest, um, he controlled that area. Um, this, by the way, is the image that men like Netanyahu, who is the Prime Minister of um, Israel right now, when they negotiate with the Muslims over the land, and we get this debate over whether Israel is going to give up more land for peace. Uh, every time they give up land, they get pieces, but they don't seem to get peace. But this is the Eretz Israel. This is what the loyal Jew sees in his mind, of the land of Israel. So you, you have to understand this to understand what goes on in negotiations with Arafat and the Palestinians on this issue. But that's Eretz Israel as it existed in the uh, era of David, their king. Um, here's what happened as it started to decline. You remember we, we went through the Civil War. There was a parting of the kingdoms, the northern part, the ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Northern kingdom went on in history known as Israel. Southern kingdom went on known as Judah, from which we get the word Jew. And uh, this has led to all kinds of heresies. Uh, um, for the last 30 or 40 years in the United States, we've had a cult going around calling them the cells of Gentiles of the ten lost tribes of Israel and that sort of thing. They're talking about this orange area and the ten tribes haven't been lost in God's mind. They just have disappeared in a, as far as identification history. And then after that northern kingdom fell, because it fell in 721, we come now down to the last few years uh, in Judah's history, and that's what we have. So this is the decline and collapse of the kingdom in the Old Testament. And what we want to remember out of that, the doctrinal lessons we learn about it, is how severe God chastens his own people. This is not due to economic forces. And this is the thing, mentally, you have to get out of the stuff that you've got in history class, philosophy class, political science class, and all the analysis that you hear about on television and so on. 
because we're, we're trained to think uh, in terms of the horizontal and that everything is this nice, neat set of natural laws and phenomena. But history doesn't work that way, and the explanation for what we've just seen in these three maps is not economics. It is not military defeat, military victory. The secret goes back to the terms of the Sinaitic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. God said, the issue is whether you're going to obey me or not. Now, if you don't want to obey me, that's fine, but then boom, 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 certain things are going to happen, and there are going to be economic things happen, there are going to be military things happen, there are going to be political things happen, but they're not happening because of economics, politics, or military science. They're happening because of my providential and personal rule. So we have to understand that's how the prophets viewed history. The first history books were not written by the Greeks, as you're always taught in social studies classes. The first history books were written by the Hebrew prophets. And the motive for historiography in the Bible is the covenant. The idea that history is a personal working out of a contract between God and man. And we're interested in tracking the terms of the contract. That's the motive for first historiography. There was a purpose and there was a meaning to it. Well, in sanctification, we've covered what we call the five areas of sanctification. Uh, last week, we dealt on page 50 of the notes, the phases of sanctification, we went through that, we went through the aim of sanctification, page 51, showing that God wants us to be loyal to him before the fall or after the fall, makes no difference, still it's the issue of sanctification. Page 52, we dealt with the means of sanctification, uh, both grace and law are always necessary, the sufficiency of scripture. All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped, thoroughly furnished, unto every, every, every good work. That means it's the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. We don't need the Bible plus something. Now, it's nice to have extra historical stuff. I used it, and I'm going to use it tonight. But the point is that we interpret everything by means of the scriptures. Um, the necessity of grace. We are sinners. We don't measure up to God's righteous standards, never will measure up to God's righteous standards, and therefore we need to borrow righteousness. And the righteousness that's credited to our account is that generated by Jesus Christ's personal obedience when he walked the face of this earth. That's the source of our righteousness. Then the Holy Spirit works a righteousness reflecting that in our hearts. Then we dealt with the dimensions of sanctification, that sanctification always has an immediate either-orness to it, and it has a long-term growth aspect to it. Um, those of you who have mathematics background, if you want to picture this, a neat way of doing that is picture a function in XY, and if you visualize a function going up, that's growth, and if you into calculus and you take the differential of that, whether the slope is up or down, and that's uh, growth or, or canality. In the, the, unless you have a flat curve, it's always going up or down. So you're either going up or you're going down. And that's, that's kind of an image of um, our, our Christian life. Um, but one thing, I, and we also went over on page 53, uh, about five or six verse references, and I said you want to add to those 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, because those particular references are things that I picked out of the New Testament where God severely disciplined believers, not unbelievers. These are believers and punish them unto death. And so the same God, we're trying to get rid of this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a meanie and the God of the New Testament is some gooey guy. It's the same God for Old and New Testament alike. He was severe in his reign in the Old Testament and he's severe in his reign in the New Testament. God is immutable, never changes. So those are excerpts um, from the New Testament pattern of suffering. What we didn't do last time was we didn't finish the enemies of sanctification. And, of course, Christians have known it, the world of flesh and the devil. But on the bottom of page 53, I have that little diagram. And what I'm trying to do with that diagram is show the principle. You see it in the book of Judges. You see it in the book of Joshua. You see it in the book of Samuel. You see it in the book of Kings. You see it in the New Testament. And that is you don't fight the world of flesh and the devil by fighting the world of flesh and the devil. You don't use a direct strategy. The way to, to deal with all these things, we finally wind up after we, God's knocked us around a bit and we get the point, um, it's loyalty to him. It's trusting him. And he gives a victory over that. And a good example 
for you the, to feed the imaginative picture in your head is think of uh, Joshua going around Jericho. Was Jericho defeated? Yes. Was it an enemy? Yes. How was it defeated? It was defeated because they did what God told them to do. What happened at Ai? Remember? They were defeated. Was this due to the, some military mistake? No. It was due to the fact they were disobedient. So, so the enemies of God are overcome only insofar as we're loyal to the king. He gives us the victory. And he won't give us the victory over these enemies. And so we said in all five points in this, we've learned something. We've learned these five areas prior to coming into this portion of history of the Bible. And now we're going to add to those things. And on page 54, at the top, we have added some insights from the enemies issue. In Joshua's day, the enemies were clearly the enemies. And it was a case of Israel having victory over those enemies in conquest. Right? Well, now, what are we seeing? We're seeing the reverse of that, aren't we? If in Joshua and Judges, the issue was conquest of the Canaanites, what is the issue at the end of 2 Kings? It is the defeat of the Jews. Now who's conquering who? See, it's reversed. So that gives us more insight now. If we had just tried to think in terms of the Hebrews conquering the Canaanites, we'd have one part down as far as this idea of how God uses enemies of sanctification to help us. Um, what we're seeing now is that God uses the enemies of uses the enemies of sanctification to help us grow. He uses them in disciplinary fashion, but the object behind the disciplinary uh, use isn't to eradicate Israel, is it? I mean, Israel's promised to survive. So when you see the Assyrians conquering them, you see the Babylonians, we'll see tonight, the Egyptians. I mean, they have some big, powerful groups going after little Israel at this point in time in history. What we have to understand is, why are they permitted to do this? Why are they permitted to subjugate Israel? Why are they permitted to destroy the northern kingdom? Why are they permitted to destroy the southern kingdom? Why does the whole nation go down in defeat? Because God has a destiny for Israel. And he's going to have that destiny. And if he has to use enemies to do it, he uses enemies to do it. Now, the thing we want to remember, to, by way of application in our lives, if you'll turn to uh, Hebrews 1, there's a little verse there that talks about how God uses enemies in our lives. This is a very complicated passage in Hebrews 1. I'm not going to even attempt to even start a commentary on it tonight. Very complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because it's very deep theological use of the Old Testament. So this is a very difficult passage. But it has to do with the interaction of angels and Jesus and the human race. And it starts out in Hebrews 1, 6, when he again brings his firstborn into the world. He said, let all the angels of God worship him. That is, Jesus is superior to all angels. And the contrast is made in verse 7. As of the angels, he says, and he quotes the Old Testament. But of the Son, he says, and it quotes the Old Testament. And it's Old Testament quote, Old Testament quote, Old Testament quote, Old Testament quote, all the way down verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13. See, the author of Hebrews knew his Old Testament very well. But in verse 13, he comes down to the end of this set of quotes. Notice what he says. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? That's a citation for the messianic leader in the Old Testament. It's used of Jesus here. Now verse 14, which is the verse we want to look at tonight just ever so briefly. Aren't they, now that's plural, Plural pronoun, they. What does it refer to? What's the antecedent of that pronoun? It's the angels in verse 13. But they, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? This is the role angels play in our spiritual growth. Now notice the word A-L-L -L in verse 14. 
Does that mean that fallen angels are included in that all-encompassing word? Yes, it does. Demonic powers, as well as the elect angels, the good guys and the bad guys, are sent to render service. And I can prove it to you because you can go through the Old Testament where there were meetings of the angelic council. First Kings 22, if you want an example. There's an angelic council that's convened from time to time in history, and the Lord Jesus Christ presides. And the good angels are one in the council, and the bad angels are in the council, and, and the whole deliberations of the council were revealed to Micaiah the prophet. A little, a little short set of minutes from this council, whatever it is, wherever it meets, whatever planet it's on, and they decide the destiny of the universe. And, and they work things out, and the Lord passes out assignments at these meetings that they have that we don't know about. Well, that's how history runs in the scriptures. And verse 14 it says that both the good angels and the bad angels are commissioned under this council to do their thing in history. And it may be very cruel things. It may be the disciplinary things we've just seen in the previous page of notes of the New Testament. It may be what we're seeing here with the exile of Israel. But all of it in the final analysis is to carry out God's plan for his elect people. Notice it says, they are sent out to render service for the sake, for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So that's God's sovereignty. And the added insight now we have from this period of history is that in sanctification, the flesh, the world, and the devils are all not just enemies to be overcome, but in the grand finesse of God's chessmanship in history, they are actually used to prod us into growth. And this kind of defangs them a little bit. It defangs the horror of cruelty because behind the cruelty, the cruelty is limited. Good and evil, the evil is not equal and opposite to good in Scripture. That's a pagan idea. The scriptural idea is that evil is contained within a sovereign good. And it started at a point in time, it's going to end at a point in time. It's bounded, it's bracketed, and it's under control. That's what makes it so difficult. See, if we really didn't believe that, then we wouldn't fuss at God when bad things happen. The very fact that we curse his name when bad things happen proves that deep down in our hearts, whether we admit it or not, deep down in our hearts, what do we believe? He's responsible. He's sovereign. And you think about it. You wouldn't get mad at God for bad things if you didn't automatically believe in his sovereignty. And that's why all men know God exists. There's no atheists. Nobody, it's just a lot of hot air and baloney talk. Because deep down, men curse God when things go bad. And they shouldn't if he doesn't exist. And they shouldn't particularly if they're convinced he doesn't exist. So, that's the end of the sanctification period. And now we want to come to the next chapter, which is the next great event in history of the Bible, and that's the exile. Now, we've looked at Israel, we've looked at Israel, we've looked at Israel over and over again. Now we're going to change perspective, and tonight marks, a, uh, marks quite a big change in our viewpoint here. Um, we're going to be spending about a month going through uh, the exile. A lot of important things happen here, including the history that we're now living inside of how God rules in that history. The event, the next to last event in the Old Testament that we're going to study is sanctification and out of it we'll see the doctrine of separation from the world. How do we live in the world but not of the world? Out of it will come the rise of apocalyptic literature. That's that literature like the book of Revelation, although Revelation wasn't written in the Old Testament, the parts of Ezekiel and Isaiah that are considered to be of the class apocalyptic literature. That's that symbolic stuff, prophecy stuff. So all that comes out of the exile. Okay. Now we want to uh, turn in the book of Daniel, and um, before we actually get in there, um, if you will notice... Um, See, where do I do it? Okay, on the bottom of page 55 of the notes, I have the large subtopic, the loss of the kingdom of God. 
I want to I want you to follow me in this text for a little bit as we go into it. Prepare for Daniel. So I'll read it. If you'll just kind of read it to yourself along with me. How can one be sure that the kingdom of God ended as the exile began? If the kingdom had begun with great supernatural events, as in the Exodus. Surely there ought to be a definite historical signs pointing to its end. Alva McLean argues that three such signs did occur prior to the fall of Jerusalem and that by these signs one can know that the start of the exile marked the loss of the preliminary form of the kingdom of God in history. In other words, the overt physical political theocracy was ended at this point in history. had profound ramifications out in the Gentile world. Uh, we're going to see a very interesting thing about all the world's religions coming up that falls out of this. Here are the three signs that Alvin McLean pointed to. Number one, the transfer of political supremacy completely into the hands of pagan nations. Number two, the end of the Davidic dynasty through Solomon. And number three, the departure of the Shekinah glory out of Israel's temple. These three events are climactic crisis public events that announce that God now starts a new era in history. Something radically different starts. So to get background on that, we're going to take it out of the book of Daniel. So if you turn to the book of Daniel, we'll look at chapters 1 and 2 tonight. If your Bible has charts in, in it of the um, rain and the timelines, you might want to look at those for just to get started. Um, I'll just kind of show you some of the broad outline. But to locate in time what's going on here, Israel, the northern kingdom, went down in 721. So keep them on B.C., so we're backwards here. The southern kingdom goes out in 586. So there's a gap of 140 years now between these two dates. And it's inside that gap that we want to look because that's the stages of when the exile progressively takes place. Later, 70 years to the year, in 516, there'll be the restoration. So we're entering this period of history known as the exile. As Bible students, we should understand that there's history going on outside of Israel. We've, uh, we've neglected it because we've been concentrating on history inside Israel. Now we're going to rejoin the world and we're going to ask what's going on on the outside. Well, on 721, in this period of history, the dominant power in the Middle East was Assyria coming from what is now Iraq. Then, in this same period of time, in the south, the power was Egypt. So to Israel's south, you have Pharaoh and his armies. In the north, you have the Assyrians. Israel is sandwiched between these two major powers. There becomes an insurrection that we'll study in a few minutes out of southern Assyria around Babylon, and these people are called the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, or properly historians to call them the, the Neo-Babylonians. Assyria is still ascendant and takes out the northern kingdom under God's sovereignty in 721. Assyria is given that authority by God himself to act as the chastening rod of men. In 586, the Neo-Babylonians finish the conquest of the southern kingdom and take it out. So now the powers of Israel have been turned completely to the mercies of the Gentiles. Daniel takes place in that bracket of time prior to 586. Daniel comes from the southern kingdom. 
And a number of issues arise here, and I want to just cover a few of them. Just a little bit of historical background. Let's look at a map of what's going on in the big outside world. Let's locate a few key things. We have here Jerusalem, Israel, down here Egypt. So you have one major sphere of influence right here. You have another sphere of influence up north, Nineveh, the Tigris River. That was the center of Assyria. And then down in these area, which is also in modern Iraq, around Babylon, Sippor, Nippur, Larsa, Ur. This is where Abraham came from. History's returning. Where did Abraham, God call Abraham out of? Ur. Where does the Israeli, uh, Israelites go? Where did the Hebrew nation wind up? Ur. You see the symmetry of history? It recurs, has cycles to it, geographical points. And so out of here you have the Babylonians. Now at this point in history, these guys are strong, the Assyrians are strong, and the Babylonians are coming on. So it's a three-way contest of who's going to control. It turns out, because of the terrain, that the, the roads, the main roads through which the armies move, go right through Palestine. So as these powers, superpowers collide, they come back and forth along these eastern roads in the eastern Mediterranean. And Israel plays a major role. Two kings get killed and all kinds of things happen because they mess around with these guys, the super nations that are vying for power. The, the major routes go all the way up here and then down. So it's not, you can't just cut across here. Nobody cuts across here except camels. The people that go up here, the horses, the chariots, the merchants, the armies, they don't cut across. They still don't cut across. They can't even move a tank across here. It sinks in the sand. So you have to go on these. These are the invasion routes. The invasion route comes up here and goes over there. Now, just to the north, beyond where I can reach on the screen, you'll see a little place, city called Carchemish. That sort of is like Gettysburg. That was a major site of a major battle in Old Testament history. Two major battles. And in in the dates are like this. In 625, a Chaldean leader started down there in Babylon. He had enough of the Assyrians. He decided that he, his, he and his people were pushed around and they were going to uh, get strong and, and whip the Assyrians, which was quite a feat because the Assyrians were very cruel and a very powerful people. Saddam Hussein carries on the tradition. We think of Saddam Hussein today as some sort of an idiot. Actually, Saddam Hussein is just a living incarnation of the Assyrians. He acts just like them. Um, if, if we would take a time machine back in history, every Assyrian king would be just like Saddam Hussein. He just fits perfectly the same mold. In 625, however, a Chaldean by the name of Nebo-Pulassar organized some of these cities down near Babylon. He decided he was going to take them on. This was 625. Notice the dates and correlate the dates with this bracket of time. In 609, Nebo-Pulassar hits the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, who were traditional opponents of the Egyptians, called on the Egyptians to support them. So the Egyptian armies start moving up the road out of the brook of Egypt, across just west of Jerusalem, run up there and join the Assyrians at Carchemish. Nebo, um, Nebo Pelasser whips them at Carchemish in 609. And we're counting down now. We've gone to 625. When he started attacking the Assyrians, he, he gets more and more power. Uh, by 612, Nineveh falls, prophesied in the book of Nahum. And by 609, now the Babylonians have become a major issue. And uh, we have... Um, uh, jo jo Josiah, the king in, in the southern kingdom, 2 Kings 23, he tries to go in there. He sees the Egyptians coming out. He doesn't like the Egyptians. He feels sorry for the Assyrians, of all things, and had a kind of like a light treaty going on. So he tries to stop the Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh kills him, and this shocks the southern kingdom because Josiah was a godly man, had bad political advice, 
what he did was he went against the prophets. The prophets had told him that sovereignty was being transferred into the hands of the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, and just knock it off and let Pharaoh take, it, take care of himself. I will take care of it, God said. You don't have to get involved in this. But he, oh, I've got to help God. Well, he helped God all right and killed himself and wound up hurting the national leadership, shocking the nation. And then later on, his son becomes uh, the king because the Pharaoh says, okay, I had enough of this guy. So he takes his son, puts his son on the throne of um, Israel. You can read all about it in 2 Kings 23. Big, long process there. The point is that now the kings that are on the throne of the southern kingdom are puppets, political puppets of the Egyptian pharaoh. He personally is selecting the kings that rule that throne because he doesn't want his roots up to north to be messed up by some bunch of Jews running around. So he's going to control that whole political area. And what's very difficult at this point in time because it was an insult to Hebrews to have to be under the power of Pharaoh. Think, where did they come from? You know, hey, what was the Exodus all about? What were we once free of? Control of Egypt. What are we now under? Back under Egypt. So it was a natural patriotic resentment toward Egypt. And it was very, very difficult for prophets like Jer Jeremiah to step up and say, sorry guys, you know, I'm just as much of a patriot as you are. But underneath being a patriot, I'm listening to the Word of God, and the Word of God doesn't say that Egypt uh, should be opposed here. You just let Egypt alone. Well, we don't want to. Well, just let her alone. And so there was constant messing up for about 50 years and two or three generations of kings that just couldn't get the prophetic message straight. So then what happened was that in Jeremiah 22, there's a story in there about some more of the politics, we're down to the year 605. We're again at Carchemish. Now, by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has given his armies under the control to his son. His son rises in, up in history, and he is known as Nebuchadnezzar. So the armies once again collide at Carchemish, second battle of Carchemish. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar puts the Egyptians out of business. He destroys the Egyptian army. Now who's in control? That map is a depiction of what happened post Second Battle of Carchemish. Now the controlling superpower is Babylon over this whole area, or as you know in history as the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And we have the Babylonian Chronicles, secular history says that Nebuchadnezzar conquered the whole area of the Hatti country, which is that area. And so there's lots of historical evidence that this actually happened. Now, during this time, he realizes that the Pharaoh has been messing with the Egyptian, with the Hebrew kings. So he decides he's going to put his puppet king on. And the, the um, um, guys that he wanted to control was Jehoiakim. And name ends in M. And Jehoiakim, those two guys, the one that was written childless. Well, those are the guys now, now under the throne of the Babylonians. It was at this point that Nebuchadnezzar had a brilliant policy. He, he was very much like the Greeks. When Alexander the Great took over the Greeks, he had a neat way of conquering people, different from the Romans, different from the Persians. The philosophy of the Greeks was that you go in and you subdue their culture. Not necessarily military, use militarily subjugate them, but the reason, how you control people is you re-indoctrinate them, you re-educate them in your way, so like the communists tried to do. Well, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, takes place right in this time frame. And what has happened is that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite trust the Hebrews. He doesn't like what's messing around. There's all kinds of these court intrigues going on. And he wants to protect his southwestern flank against any more problems coming up from Egypt. It's not something personal against the Jews. He, he has a bigger enemy in mind than the Jews. So, in order to maintain peace, he takes hostages. And he brings the hostages to his land. And that's where we pick up the text in verse 1 and verse 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Baal, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, notice who's doing the giving here. Who's the subject of the verb? The Lord. Is it because Nebuchadnezzar's armies are bigger than the armies of the southern kingdom? Well, they are, but that's not why. It says the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, watch, watch the text. 
Remember, the text of the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit through human prophets who were analysts. And they don't waste words. Paper and parchment were expensive in those days. They didn't write a thousand pages. They were very concise and abbreviated in their style. So when you see something mentioned in the text, you want to pay careful attention to it. Look what's going on in verse 2. Observe. Of all the things that goes on when Nebuchadnezzar comes down and blasts into Jerusalem, what is the thing that seems to most disturb the author of Daniel? It says, he took some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So while what are we doing here? We're having pagan religion once again in total ascendancy. And there's going to be a struggle that starts with verse 2. Shall the monotheism of Israel be absorbed into this big sponge of pagan religion? This sets the tone for what's about to take place. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and nobles, Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach him, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, who are these youths in verse 4? They're young boys in their teens, senior high, junior high, who had a reasonably good education up to this point in Israel. Didn't have television, so everybody was literate. And the result was that these men studied the Torah, they studied the scriptures carefully, they knew other subjects, and they integrated them. So now they come, and what is the, uh, what is the curriculum of Nebuchadnezzar? Notice, notice what's going on here. Got to get this, because otherwise this whole dream thing, everybody wants to get into the dreams of Daniel, and they never notice what's going on in chapter 1. Well, let's look. In chapter 1... It's saying first in verse 2 the symbols of monotheistic Israel are being absorbed or trying to be into a pagan temple. The next thing is verse 4 the young leadership the male potential leadership these guys aren't the people just off the street these are young teenagers who are being groomed as the future rulers of Israel precisely the teenagers we want. We want the teenagers that are going to lead. And what does he do with them? He takes them into a special training program for what we would call today retraining. Chinese communists have re-education campaigns. Try to get those evangelical Chinese all believing in Mao Zedong's deity or something. Here we have, they ordered them to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We want these young men to be fluent in our language, and we want them to know our literature, not the Jewish literature, our literature. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from which wine which he drank, appointed they should be educated three years, so it's basically like senior high, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So there's a three-year curriculum of retraining going to go on. He wants to turn Jewish boys into good pagan boys. That's the name of the game here. And then they can be trusted. Then they can be controlled. Then they can be of service to Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, right here, we have one of the chief doctrines that we're going to see over and over again this period of history. Out of this period of history, there will emerge guidelines from Scripture on how to live in a pagan society. This is the background now of what, what's going on. Now, Daniel could have picked, uh, picked all kinds of issues to, to make, make a stand on. But you'll notice that prior to verse 8, something else had happened in this little three-year curriculum that Nebuchadnezzar had arranged. You don't catch it unless you do a word study on the names of these boys. So let me... Uh, you look at the text in verse um, 6 and 7. Verse 6, 
lists the name of four young teenagers. Now, each one of these names means something and is going to be... Um, the Holy Spirit's putting this in the text to show us what Nebuchadnezzar, how he was trying to politically manipulate and actually in the final analysis spiritually subdue. So we have Daniel, Hananiah, we have Mishael, and we have Azariah. Now that's their Jewish name. All four of those names have meaning in the Hebrew language. Just as uh, in our country, um, you know, three, 300 years ago, you go into gold graveyards in New England and you, you look at the tombstones and you'll see that most of the people, particularly the women, who are buried in those graveyards three centuries ago are named from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's charity, there's patience, there's so-and-so. They're all, they're, all, they're all named, and it shows you the deep and profound influence that Christianity had in this country. And the people were named because they loved that. Those names were precious to them. Well, now, the indoctrination begins. Verse 7, the commander assigned new names to them. When you change a person's name, you ultimately try to change their identity. So here they're starting to break down their believer's identity. So verse 7, the commander names Daniel Belteshazzar. He renames Hananiah Shadrach. He renames Mishael Meshach. And he renames Azariah Abednego. Now, what's going on here? Observing the text, the Holy Spirit could have picked out a hundred guys. There were hundreds of young teenagers here. Now, he picks out these four to show us something. Here's Daniel. Now, D-A-N in the Hebrew language is judge. The verb. El is Elohim. It means, his name means God has judged. This name, B E L, is related to the Old Testament pagan god Baal. And this is a combination word which basically has the meaning of shall protect him. So, whereas in, in Hebrew, it was El, Elohim, who judges, like the judges in the book of Judges, they weren't judges with black coats, they were judges that did what? They were leaders, they were political leaders, they were people who protected the people, they were more like police and military people than courtroom judges. When it says God has judged, it means God, my Elohim, has protected me. Deliberately, the Babylonians are shrewd operators. They take this boy's name, they twist it around, replace El with Baal, and then take another word that basically means the same thing over here as Dan. Baal has judged. So you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to absorb, just like a big slurping amoeba, they're trying to absorb these believers into their system. Let's see what else he does. Hananiah, this is hard to see without writing all the Hebrew elements, but this is actually Yahweh, the last end of this name. And this is the word to be gracious. And so the second teenager's name meant Yahweh is gracious. Now he's turned into this name and it's not well understood. Daniel is written with a Hebrew and Aramaic mix and because there's not good vocabulary books, not good dictionaries, it's hard when you read a word because you don't have enough literature to test the word meaning out. People really don't know what this is, but they think that what this actually is is a distortion of Marduk. You say, well, how do you get that out of there? Well, it's the K, the CH, the K. The uh, R and the D are reversed. 
and uh, SH apparently it looks like in text something like their M. So we're not sure of this one, but it has something to do with the Babylonian god Marduk. Mishael, there's El, E-L again. So this third boy, he has Elohim as part of his name. Mi, mi means who, and Ish is is. And what he's saying, what this name means is who, is what God is. In other words, what kind of, who is God? What is he like? It's, a, it's sort of like a question. Mishael. Now look what he's done over here. Meshach has to do, and again, it's, it's phonetics, the, the scholars in Aramaic tell us this. Actually, this means who is Aku, the moon god. So they've taken, they, these guys knew what they were doing. They knew the Hebrew meaning of these boys' names. So they're going to deliberately change them. We're going to enroll them in a re-education process for three years and try to completely change their identity as believers. Turn these kids into pagans. Now we have Azariah and Aether. That's the word Aether. Here's Yahweh again, Yaya. Aether, Yahweh is my Aether. Yahweh is my helper. That's the word used for woman, but... faith in the hearts of believers. So right from the start of this book of Daniel, right from the start of the exile period, we have a, a period of history now we're going into that's very helpful for us today. Because these people are lone believers immersed in a series of Gentile cultures over which they have no control. And the culture is out to destroy them as individuals, to crush their faith, to change their identity, to put them in a public education system grounded on pagan principles. So we have this complete program going on. Now in the middle of this, we have verse 8. Now it's interesting that Daniel chose a point, uh, he drew a line in the sand as a young teenager. And it shows the wisdom of this boy and how he conducted himself. First of all, you'll notice in verse 8 that he is respectful of the authorities. He probably was prepared, as Meshach and Abednego finally were put in prison, he was probably prepared to go all the way. He would be polite, he would be courteous, but he would not compromise his faith, period. Put me in with the lions, put me in the furnace, kill me. But my loyalty is supracultural. My loyalty is above the culture. My loyalty is above peer pressure. Peer pressure doesn't impress me, Daniel's saying. So here the believer is with a sea of this stuff around. He could have protested his name. He could have protested the curriculum. But he chose instead to protest the food. You can't fight 150 battles at once. It's a military principle of war called the principle of concentration of power. You have to pick your fight and devote the resources necessary to win it. And you can't be fighting three or four. And Hitler found that out. He was going to go into Russia and the German generals told him, you're crazy. The only way we're ever going to conquer Russia is with one-pronged attack. Oh, Hitler had to show how great he was. And he had three prongs. So he dissipated the German army over a thousand miles front and wound up getting clobbered. Dissipate, violated the principle of concentration of force. Well, Daniel realizes as a young teenager he can't, can't fight three battles. So he's going to concentrate on one. Now, why does he pick this one? We're not really sure, but it may have something to do with the fact that the food here, it's not just a case of nutrition. The food here, apparently because of that verse 2 thing, it probably has something to do with religious worship. So, in his estimation, at this point in his life, he had to make a stand. And he chose to make the stand on this issue of diet. And you'll notice what he did. And this is another classic wisdom, wisdom technique. He's not going in verse 9. He says, God granted Daniel favor and compassion on the side of the commander of the officials. 
The commander of the officials said, I'm afraid my lord the king was appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more ragged than the youths which are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king, and he meant it. Now, every once in a while you read news stories about Saddam Hussein kills off his sons, shoots his family, kills his aunt. Oh, you cruel man. Ah, he's a typical Assyrian pagan Babylonian. So that's how they always acted. They acted this way in 700, and they act this way in 1990. I mean, hey, some things never change. So that, they had the same attitude then. So this guy's afraid. He says, look, I don't want to screw up. And, you know, you mess around, kid, and you make me look good. I'm the superintendent of the school, and he expects you to graduate in three, three years from now. I, I want to have some A students here. And if I don't get A students, I get taken out here and my head chopped off. So there's a little motive behind the teaching in that day. So Daniel said to the overseer, he said, verse 12, brilliant proposal. Now think of this. This is a young boy now, maybe 15, 16, 17 years old. He's in a foreign power. He's a prisoner of war. And he has a discernment not only to survive in the middle of this horror, but he has the ability to think through and negotiate smartly. Just a real neat thing. And that's why God, verse 9, says God granted this to him. He was a very strong character person. So Daniel said to the overseer, and he proposes in verse 12 a test. So notice verse 12, very important tactic. We sell, when you can't sell biblical authority to a pagan, what is the next best thing to do? Sell the results of biblical life to the believer on a pragmatic basis. And that's what he's doing. He's taking the fruit of a biblical faith walk and saying, just never mind why I'm doing it, my motive, my faith. Just, just, just look at the results. And then you judge the results. So we call this the pragmatic approach, not pragmatistic. He's not buying into the philosophy of pragmatism. He's simply pragmatically appealing to the non-Christian to observe things. He says, test your servants. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. So he goes on a vegetarian diet. And by the way, it shows you it's not a Jewish kosher issue here because Jewish, Jewish kosher law allowed meat. So the fact he's on vegetarian means the issue wasn't kosher, non-kosher food here. It was apparently due to something to do with the paganism. It might have been like Corinthians. The Corinthian church had a problem. All the meat was dedicated in the temple. And they had a meat-eating problem in the church of Corinth. Paul spent the whole chapter on it. Meat was a, was a sacrifice. They'd sacrifice the animals. And, you know, you've got to have money. So why waste good animal meat when you can serve it in the restaurant? So when the animals were slaughtered for these pagan ceremonies, they sold off the meat. So it might be that the meat then was identified with pagan worship, and that's why he's doing this thing. So he listened to them in the matter, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food, wine, and he kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge, intelligence, and every branch of literature and wisdom. And now we have introduced, verse 17, a special gift was given to this boy Daniel. He had the ability to understand visions and dreams, which now winds us up into a little section, a little dissertation about dreams in the Scripture. What about dreams? Well, we don't want to go into all kinds of things about it, but let me show you some observations. Dreams were used as revelatory tools in the Bible. But, here's the big but. Got to be careful. The Bible is the final word of God. So somebody can have a dream and say, well, God told me in a dream. Well, if God told you in a dream and it doesn't line up with God told everybody else, God didn't tell you in a dream. Dreams are subordinate to Scripture. But there's something else more profound. There's only 16 dreams recorded in the Old Testament. Now, guess how many of the 16 occurred prior to the giving of the law when they had a canon of Scripture available? Eleven of the 16 dreams occurred before there was a Bible available to them. What does that tell you then about the decrease in dream frequency? It was necessary. Once you have a canon of Scripture, the issue is read it, study it, meditate upon it, relying upon the Holy Spirit, the author of the text, to interpret it. We don't need to dream. 
another observation about dreams in the scripture. If you go through and you catalog the dreams, almost all the Jewish dreams that are recorded in scripture are related to something having to do with the Abrahamic covenant. Almost all the dreams of the Jews have something to do with the Abrahamic covenant. Now, why, what's going on here? What I'm trying to say is that the dreams that were truly revelatory were not over, I stubbed my toe yesterday and fell flat on my face. They're not personal stuff. The dreams that are recorded in Scripture that genuinely come from God have to do with the history of the nation. They have to do with guidance at a very high level, not just, you know, trivial. Second observation about dream content. The dreams that were recorded in Genesis 41 of Pharaoh, a dream that now is going to be recorded in Daniel chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar, are dreams of Gentile rulers that have as their content the direction history is taking. It's very interesting. When Gentiles have dreams in the Bible, they are dreaming about something where God is speaking indirectly to them about their personal destiny as political leaders. And he codes the dream. So the dream can't be interpreted by the Gentile. That's the other feature. These guys dream clear dreams. They see the pictures. But God doesn't give enough information in the dream so they can make out what God's saying. They just have the inclination that God is trying to talk to me. And in both the case of Pharaoh and in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, who is it that interprets the dream? It's a Jewish guy that somehow is locked in. In Joseph's case, he's in prison. In Daniel's case, he's a hostage. So here the men are in power. What is this saying? We want to back off and look at this. Look at the picture here. When God gives a dream to this mighty monarch with all of his power, the key to the dream is down here in the pocket of one of his prisoners. And it's always a Jewish prisoner. Now what does that say about how God addresses history? Who is to be the worldwide blessing? Third provision of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the Jew. So here again, when we come to Daniel 2, we come to a dream of a Gentile ruler. God is speaking to that Gentile ruler. God is revealing something genuine to the Gentile ruler, but the key to the dream, he doesn't give him. And he has to hunt around. He's furious because he can't get this dream unlocked. So he looks for the key. And the key is going to be this young Jewish boy. Now we come to the dream itself. And obviously we're running out of time. So I want to take you quickly to page 56 in the notes. I urge you to read the dream in Daniel 2. And we'll talk a little bit about it next week. But the dream has to do with the transfer of political supremacy. So if you'll follow with me in the notes under point one. Shortly after his final victory at Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar ascended the throne of Babylon. For the next two years, he purged pockets of resistance in Western Asia. Finally, by 603, his second official year as king, Nebuchadnezzar became the undisputed lord and master of the ancient world. Precisely at that historical moment, King Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. It can be timed. Once he cleaned up the pockets of resistance and he had undiminished unchallenged sovereignty was that moment that God gave him dream of chapter 2. And then God used Daniel to interpret a panorama of history from that day in 603 B.C. until the final reestablishment of the kingdom of God and its completeness which is yet to come. The dream's central theme was transfer of political supremacy from Israel to four successive Gentile pagan kingdoms. Here's the quote. Thou, O king, watch the language, thou, O king, are king of kings. By the way, a term that applies to Jesus in the book of Revelation, exactly the same. Thou, O king, are king of kings, unto whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wheresoever, now look at this un qualified clause. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven has he given into thy hand and has made thee to rule over them all. 
Hence, therefore, you'll see me use the, uh, the word picture as we get on. This is the rise of imperialism. When one nation can literally control the world. And Nebuchadnezzar, although politically and geographically, he didn't. He just controlled that area. You have to agree that the language in the middle of that verse is universal language. That is a commission that he has given that he has freedom under God to conquer the world. The rise of imperial paganism. Centuries later, and that what I want you to see in conclusion is that that couldn't have happened prior to this year, 603. Why? The next verse. Centuries earlier, such power could never have been given to a Gentile nation because of God's promise to Israel. Verse from Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 13. If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Jehovah thy God, that Jehovah thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Now you can't have Daniel 2 and Deuteronomy 28, 1 true at the same time. Okay? So while Israel was obedient, and while a political kingdom of God was visible in the Old Testament, there couldn't be imperial paganism. It would not be permitted. God had not transferred the sovereignty. He kept it potentially available to Israel. Israel potentially could have conquered the world. Israel potentially could have dominated in the times of David and Solomon had she just been obedient long enough. So, conclusion to this section, McLean observes concerning the previous centuries leading up to the exile, during that long period, the power and authority of the theocracy was never in question. No nation, regardless of its size or strength, could stand successfully against Israel as long as that people followed the will of its divine king. Israel went down in defeat only when she turned aside from the divinely written charter of her kingdom. So now we have the first of the three signs, the transfer of sovereignty that could not have happened prior to this time in history. Something new is taking place. I remind you, too, that the modern state of Israel does not exist except by Gentile permission. Read the documents, 1948. How did Israel get the land she's in? UN mandate. Who's the UN? Gentiles. The modern state of Israel exists by Gentile permission. Father, we thank you for your trustworthiness, for the fact that you do work all things after the counsel of your will. We thank you that we have such a God on which we can rely. And thank you, God, for giving us these character pictures in men like Daniel, the wise men who acted so wisely and act as role models for us in a potentially hostile culture as he did. We thank you for your gracious love toward us through Christ. Amen. I don't know. Um, I guess um, one of the key uh, history texts is SAGS, S-A-G-G-S, uh, History of Babylon. Might check in there. I, I, I'm not aware of it. Um, whether they made a practice. A lot of the ancient um, people slaughtered people quite liberally, but uh, whether they ate them or not, I don't know. Anything else? Any other dietary questions? <laughs> no? No questions, I guess. Okay, well, we'll next week we'll um, uh, keep uh, trying to read Daniel 2, and then the notes that were handed out tonight, you'll see a section of Ezekiel where they... Shekinah glory departs, and there's some verses in there. Um, try to read that section of Ezekiel, because that's another one of these signs. It's a public sign, it's a historical sign, and yet uh, many, many students of the Bible just don't observe these signs. Something happens here in history. And we'll get into one of the ramifications is that every, uh, well, within 70 years of this date, Every major uh, old world religion started. It's amazing. 
put it, I blew my mind one day when some a missionary pointed this out to me and applied it in a graph. Go, go encyclopedia and look up the date at which the world's religion started. And you would think that they randomly start through time. It's amazing. They're all clustered between five, 600 and 500. So whatever's going on here in history stimulated things all over the world. How do you explain the fact that you know, um, uh, you have uh, Zoroastrianism begin, Persia. Confucius lives and uh, starts his thing. Buddha starts his thing. All these guys start, and they all have the same characteristic. They're all ethical religions. They're all anti-supernatural religions. Uh, part Zoroastrianism, be, you know, be an argument about that maybe. But they all are very highly ethical religions. It's almost as though the Gentiles now are mimicking the Jewish law that the witness of the scriptures had gone forth on the trade routes of the world and these ethical principles began to be believed all over the world. But now that God has removed himself from history so there is no more a supernatural testimony, the, the Shekinah glory that merchants must have known about. I mean, think of it. Thousands of merchants and businessmen passed through that land. And you can't tell me that the witness of that temple wasn't there and that they knew, the Chinese knew. Now, let's tell me the stuff that the people didn't know. The Chinese knew, the Japanese knew, the Hottentots knew, everybody knew that went through there. I mean, come on, Marco Polo goes to China on a visit and brings back gunpowder, paper, and everything else. And these guys went repeatedly through Israel and didn't bring back anything? I just find it very difficult to believe. So apparently they permeated the world. And this must have had it. Satan always tries to counterfeit the truth. And so it's amazing that you have these so-called prophets. And Confucius is called a prophet. You have all of a sudden, for no strange reason, no antecedents, no apparent causes, out of the blue, Buddha comes up. Confucius comes up. All teaching the same thing. All admit they don't know a thing about heaven, have no word from God, but you're supposed to be good boys and girls. And they're all anti-supernatural. They, they put aside the old religions. In, in India, Vedanta Hinduism comes in. So it's amazing. We'll go into a time plot of those, and you'll see them. Just amazing. I've never had a history course that explains it. Everybody talks about the world's religions, and they never notice. They all happen inside the exilic period. Why? Why? Well, obviously they don't want to talk about it, because that might suggest, geez, the Bible might be true. Can't have that. And so we, we kind of ignore that thing in the, in the history of religion. But it's something to throw out, something neat to tell your kids about, to put a paper in when they need a thesis topic or something. Try that one on the teacher and see what happens. Okay, well, next week, if Daniel 2 and we'll get into Ezekiel.